0: It's Wednesday, September 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. California is facing a backlash for its tiered system for reopening businesses during the pandemic. Counties throughout the state used to be on a watch list, but are now in a color-coded system of yellow, orange, red, and purple, with purple being the worst designation. Critics say that this system hits some businesses harder than others. Chris Woodyard, LA Bureau Chief for USA Today, joins us for the plan to reopen California. Next, COVID-19 has impacted the public health system so much that it will have to change to accommodate and incorporate COVID-19 into doctor's offices, virus surveillance, and hospital planning. The good news is that the healthcare system has done it before with HIV and H1N1. Nicole Wetzman, health reporter at The Verge, joins us for how the coronavirus has changed the healthcare system. Finally, President Trump is pushing some conspiracy theories that is matching some months-old rumors inspiring people to arm themselves. Trump said that a plane loaded with thugs wearing dark uniforms were sent to disrupt the RNC, and also said that people that are in the dark shadows are controlling Joe Biden. Ben Collins, reporter at NBC News, joins us for more. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in.
1: These are the guidelines, these color-coded county guidelines that we're putting forward uh, to get us through this flu season to prepare for the upcoming flu season, this
0: twindemic as sorts as we deal with flu and we deal with COVID-19 to work through the next uh, few months. Joining us now is Chris Woodyard, Los Angeles Bureau Chief for USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking a lot about how states are reopening, the plans that they're using It's been pretty chaotic, to say the least. Everybody's taking a different approach, obviously. But we wanted to use California as an example of what's going on. For a while, they had various counties throughout the state on watch lists, monitoring increased cases of coronavirus. And from there, they'll say, well, you know, there's a lot of cases going on. A lot of businesses can't open, or only certain businesses can open with certain restrictions. Well, now they've changed it again. And now they're doing this color-coded, tiered system for reopening businesses You're either uh, purple, red, orange, or yellow based on the risk level there, but they're getting a lot of backlash for it. There's a lot of people that say, hey, my business can still operate properly under certain guidelines, but you're not letting us. It's kind of a mess. So Chris, help us walk through what this new tiered system looks like.
1: Just as you pointed out, it's four colors, and basically all the populous areas of the state are right now in the purple, in the most hazardous, most shut down state still. There's a few areas that are being allowed to open up a little bit more, but not that many. So you have these four different categories of what's allowed to uh, open under these conditions. And then you also have these classifications by type of business. So, you know, gyms remain closed, theme parks remain closed, but restaurants are beginning to open a little bit more. And with every time they move up in the system, they get to open up, you know, a few more seats indoors. So it's a real hodgepodge. Critics are saying that it's really rough on some businesses because nail salons are closed, but barbershops and manicures have been able to open indoors with a few, you know, chairs when they're very similar types of businesses. One San Diego County supervisor says Legoland is closed, but SeaWorld was able to open because it's being classified as a zoo.
0: Jim's is another big one. I know larger gyms have kind of largely just remained closed, but smaller boutique gyms are even defying the state's orders in a lot of cases, saying, well, we're going to open regardless because we can do it safe. We are wearing masks and social distancing, cleaning everything. So I know the gyms has been a particular point of contention throughout this whole thing.
1: These owners of boutique gyms and lots of these other businesses say, look, I know how I operate my business. I can do this safely. Look at all the safeguards I'm putting into place. You know, a boutique gym, a small gym, the owner there can pretty much keep watch on what everyone's doing and how far apart they are from each other. So they say that's the real problem here, that they know even in counties that still have high rates of coronavirus or relatively high, that they can operate safely, but they're not being allowed to.
0: What does it take for a county to get into a lower tier and then be able to reopen more businesses?
1: So they say that the requirement is that a county has to keep its numbers improving for like 21 days before they can move into the next tier. If they show deterioration over those 21 days, they still have to stay in that tier. 21 days is a long time if you own a business. If you've been a salon owner or someone that has a, a nail shop, 21 days is a long time to have to stay closed when you see other types of businesses opening. So that's been another sore point for them
0: let's say cases do tick up. How long do they have before they have to close down again, let's say? Because, you know, a case can tick up one week, jump back down the next week. Are they using that kind of 21-day thing if you're going to go back up a tier again?
1: That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer. I do understand that local county health departments can sort of impose their own owners and have some flexibility here. In fact, I think there's a fair amount of flexibility in the whole system if they see another health crisis developing, or a huge outbreak or something happening, which very well could happen, because we've seen these setbacks over the last six months that we've been dealing with this crisis. I don't know exactly what the answer is in terms of what has to happen when, under these guidelines, if things go downhill, because everyone's been so focused on reopening, not shutting down again.
0: What has been the reaction from Governor Gavin Newsom, and his leadership on this whole thing. I mean, obviously, I know he wants to open things up. Nobody wants businesses to suffer and be closed, but they're just erring on the side of caution with all this. But it really is at the risk of a huge economic impact to the state.
1: Huge economic impact. And, you know, everyone knows it becomes a balance between safety and economic impact. The governor's approach seems to have been kind of take it as it comes. There have been so many twists and turns with this crisis. We learn so many things as time has gone on that have sort of changed the game. So, for instance, as you know, we started with everyone being urged not to wear masks, and then a month or two later, everyone had to wear a mask. So that's what the governor has been facing. You know, he has changed plans. They are modifying things as they go. One could argue from his standpoint that it's a matter of trying to just deal with the best facts as they present themselves and that it's a fluid situation. For business owners, for others that have an economic stake in this, it's really frustrating. They don't get one set of rules. They don't have one goalpost. The goalposts move around, and that's a real problem for businesses.
0: Chris Woodyard, Los Angeles Bureau Chief for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for letting me uh, be with you today.
2: So, if we think about kind of the baseline level of respiratory disease that we expect to see each year, we're now kind of layering another infection on top of that. So, it sort of raises what that baseline level of disease looks like.
0: Joining us now is Nicole Wetzman, health reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about how coronavirus is changing the healthcare system. Right now, we don't know the timeline on what's going to happen, but they're thinking that this is going to eventually become part of baseline testing and diagnostics when you go to the doctor. Obviously, this is dependent on a lot of different things, on vaccines and whatnot, but the U.S. is going to have to change how we accommodate this and you know, into doctor's offices and virus surveillance and hospital planning. There's a lot of what's going to be changing just to kind of roll this into our quote-unquote new normal that a lot of people say. So Nicole, tell us a little bit about that, how the healthcare system is gonna change because of COVID nineteen.
2: At the early out of the pandemic, there was sort of the idea that there was a possibility that we could contain this virus and stop it from circulating widely. Sort of like what happened with SARS and MERS, which aren't really a problem anymore. But it's since become clear that this coronavirus, that COVID-19, is not something that's going to go away. It's going to be something that circulates for a long time. It's going to be something we, we deal with periodically in some form or another. And, you know, it's a respiratory infection, and we already have a lot of respiratory infections that circulate, flu being one of them. So if we think about kind of the baseline level of respiratory disease that we expect to see each year, we're now kind of layering another infection on top of that. So it sort of raises what that baseline level of disease looks like. And that means that we need more, basically, in terms of resources, in terms of monitoring systems, and kind of all of the things that we would need to keep track of
0: kind of a higher amount of disease. One of the good things is that we are very adaptable, and we've already done this before. We've done this with HIV We did this with the last pandemic virus, which was the H1N1, the good thing that kind of diminished itself and is kind of like a regular circulating flu strain. So we have done this stuff before.
2: As we learn more about this particular virus, it'll become something that doctors kind of know intimately the way that they do some of the other viruses that they handle regularly. And it'll become something that's less of an emergency and more of just sort of part of common practice.
0: You were talking about how coronavirus is everywhere and it's you know spreading all over the place. It's going to be with us for some time, despite how many rules and regulations we put in place. And you mentioned in your article, take a look at New Zealand. They had over 100 days with no new cases. And then all of a sudden it came out of nowhere. It was a small cluster, but still they couldn't even figure out where that thing came from.
2: Sure, yeah. So that's a sign of sort of how pervasive this virus is because it's something that can spread From people who don't have symptoms and don't look sick and spreads in people who have very very mild symptoms that makes it kind of a tricky thing to catch every single case and it spreads pretty easily so that's kind of one of the reasons why it's not something that's going to be containable in the same way that maybe other types of respiratory infections can be
0: so let's talk about some of the changes that we're going to have to accommodate hospitals first off they might need to account for needing more beds, more hospital beds. But that's a difficult thing when you talk about expanding hospital capacity. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that.
2: So, you know, when we think about having another circulating respiratory virus, hospitals sort of have the modeling that they do to predict how many beds, how many nurses, how many ICU beds they'll need each year based on kind of our previous normal amount of disease. Now we have another disease that's circulating and, and that might change those models. But adding new beds to a hospital is very complicated. It's involved a lot of bureaucratic zoning issues, big financial considerations, it's not an easy process. And, you know, a lot of hospitals are already running at max capacity even before the pandemic. So this isn't a new problem needing kind of more space in hospitals, but it's one that becomes more pressing when we're adding a new disease into circulation.
0: We're waiting for a vaccine, obviously. We have a bunch of candidates in third-stage trials right now, so we're hoping Mm -hmm. those things come out quickly. But there's things that we're going to have to accommodate with that as well. Is it going to be a one-shot protocol? Is it going to be a two-shot protocol? From my understanding, a lot of the candidates are working on two-shot protocols. So that will also be another thing, to roll that into kind of the everyday healthcare system. Are we going to vaccinate kids when they're young? And, you know, if you need the subsequent booster shot, that's a lot of stuff to work on.
2: You know, experts sort of are familiar with the regular vaccine schedule for children. And if we need to, this becomes something that can be given once in childhood, that's actually a fairly straightforward thing to do. Just adding another shot to the list of childhood immunizations, if though it becomes something like the flu shot we have to take more regularly, that's a little bit more complicated. We're already not very good at vaccinating everyone for the flu each year and asking people to get kind of two annual shots or another shot that maybe you have to get every couple of years, you know, that's a big public health undertaking and would require kind of a dedicated public health campaign to help people kind of meet whatever goals we set for the amount of vaccination that we want to see in the population going forward. Now, this would be after sort of the initial pandemic-associated vaccination, but sort of if we're thinking on a more long-term basis.
0: Nicole Wetzman, health reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. I don't even like to mention
3: Biden because he's not controlling anything. Who who do you think is pulling
0: Biden's strings? Uh, Is it former
3: Obama? People that you've never heard of. People that are in the dark shadows. People
0: that. What does that mean? That sounds like conspiracy theory of dark shadows. People that? that you haven't heard of. Joining us now is Ben Collins reporter for NBC News covering disinformation and the Internet. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about something that the president said. He did an interview with Fox News host Laura Ingram. She asked him a question, you know, who do you think is controlling Joe Biden? Who do you think is giving him money? Things like that. And then he started going off into this kind of conspiracy theory thing, saying there was these thugs coming in planes, wearing all black uniforms, to the RNC to come and cause mayhem. And then he started going off on these people in the dark shadows that are controlling Joe Biden. Some of this stuff kind of mirrors things that we've seen on the internet a few months ago. But, uh, you know, he was being very vague, intentionally vague, I think, when he was responding about this. So Ben, walk us through some of this. What are we hearing from this?
3: So he started talking about people on the streets that are controlling the streets. That's his words. And he said that there was a group of people that apparently boarded some plane to the RNC, to Washington, D.C. He said it was this weekend, which would be after the RNC, but that doesn't really matter. The timing is probably the least weird part of this whole story. This mirrors almost identically, especially his wording, the people clad in black and geared up, almost identically this Facebook post from a man in Idaho from June 1st, so three months ago to the day, about this guy said a dozen people got on this plane from Boise to Seattle. They were dressed head to toe in black. And he said, be ready the armed, because he believes that they were Antifa. He said one of them had an Antifa America tattoo on his arm, which is kind of hard to believe. Obviously, that never transpired. Antifa did not do any property damage or anything like that in Boise. However, these rumors that sort of made their way through Facebook and up the chain using, in part, some white supremacist militia groups, I would assume found their way through these information channels and eventually to the president.
0: It got so bad that the sheriff in one of those towns had to release a statement saying that this is a viral rumor, that it's false information. You don't have to show up armed and ready to attack or fight people yeah. You know?
3: A couple of these posts, there were thousands of these posts on Facebook, and they went extremely viral in private Facebook groups in Idaho, with people saying, you know, you got to be ready to protect your house, to protect your property. A couple of them implicated the Pyatt County Sheriff's Office, which is the jurisdiction that would have dealt with this. And they said that, you know, they confirmed it. And Pike County was like, no, we didn't. This is completely false. We have never heard anything about this, this plane full of Antifa thing. But that didn't matter. With these, there are people who showed up to rallies in Missoula, Montana, and they said explicitly, you know, the plane load of Antifa is why they were there. So this is the sort of viral stuff over the past three or four months that we saw tons of. We saw it everywhere. But it wasn't really backed up by fact. The idea that Antifa, which is not a tightly knit organization like the president likes to portray it, is somehow organizing to go and take down the suburbs. That has not happened yet. And in fact, there's no information showing that that will happen in the future.
0: How is this disinformation spreading? Is it just localized Facebook groups and they shared enough times within each other that it kind of bubbles out of that? Or is it really just kind of contained within the Facebook groups, but these are the people that are actually going out and acting on some of this disinformation?
3: People are acting on this. People are showing up to, like, town halls to protect them all across the country. Three months ago, when this was really going viral across the United States, we did a story, kind of zoomed into this town in Oregon in Klamath Falls, where they were told that Antifa was going to come to the center of town and just start breaking stuff up. So a bunch of armed people came together, and they started really... Being extremely aggressive with these Black Lives Matter protesters across the street, just a handful of them. And when they went away, you know, at the end of the night when Antifa did not show up because they were never going to show up, they kind of declared victory. They said, look, we chased them off. They never came in their buses and their planes. So this is a thing that has been all throughout the United States, both through text messages, through Facebook, through Nextdoor is another venue for this. It sort of had this viral Shelf life that lasted for weeks and weeks and had its own localized derivations depending on which town or city you were in.
0: What about the other statements that the president made, talking about who's controlling Joe Biden, these people in dark shadows? He was telling Laura Ingram, people that you haven't heard of. I think she even said, hey, this kind of sounds like conspiracy theory stuff. But he says, you know, I'll tell you sometime. It's under investigation. Like I said earlier, he's being intentionally vague about a lot of this.
3: This is sort of red meat to the conspiracy crowd that still loves the president. There's a Cults that literally believe that Donald Trump is the uh, Messiah. He's here to uh, save the world. Basically, it's QAnon, and that has millions of followers on Facebook. So the dark shadows are really the premise of QAnon, and there's other conspiracy theories that are much older than that, having to do with specific groups pulling the strings that have some really dark histories. It's not a positive thing to want to drum up this sort of thing in American society. So he knows what he's doing. He's trying to get people on the fringes to sort of just come along until at least November. And again, this is red meat. This is the way for him to hint at them without actually explicitly saying anything is coming.
0: Ben Collins, reporter for NBC News, covering disinformation and the internet. Thank you very much for joining us. Cool. Thank you. That's it for today.